Hi, it's Mark Wasserman. Welcome to the Ska Boom podcast, which is the audio companion to my book, Ska Boom, an American Ska and Reggae Oral History. The goal of this podcast is to talk about Ska, with an emphasis on American Ska history in the bands, musicians, and people who have helped to create and document a uniquely American version of Ska and Reggae that spans from the late 70s until today. This is the 10th and final episode of the Two-Tone Legacy series. I took some time off earlier this year after coming down with a nasty case of COVID, but I've been meaning to finish out this series with an incredibly interesting two-tone story all about the woman dubbed the Beat Girl, who served as the model for the English Beat's iconic band logo. Ah, the Beat Girl. If it was possible to be attracted to the inanimate cartoon logo of a band, then count me in. Indeed, I spent much of my college years looking for a girl who looked dressed and had the same allure as the Beat Girl. I had to settle for wearing her on a Beat t-shirt that was my favorite band shirt of all time. I still have the badly stretched out and tattered remains of it in a drawer somewhere. I actually was able to buy it when I saw the band back in April of 1983 at the Fountain Casino in New Jersey, and it soon became one of my most treasured and prized possessions. When it came time for the Beat to create a logo for their first album and for marketing posters and advertisements, they called upon Hunt Emerson. Emerson is a noted British cartoonist and comic book artist. It turns out it was quite a coup for the Beat to work with Emerson. A quick trawl of the web and newspaper archives easily gathers a host of acclaim for him. Quote, the funniest cartoonist in the UK, one of the greatest surreal cartoonists, Britain's national treasure, quite simply Britain's funniest and most visionary cartoonist, one of the best and weirdest British comic artists ever, England's finest full stop. Emerson drew the Beat Girl from an original photo of a woman dancing with Prince Buster in the early 1960s that he spied in the Melody Maker in May of 1979. According to an interview I did with Emerson about the inspiration for the design, he told me, I spotted a picture in a music newspaper of Prince Buster dancing with the Beat Girl. I don't know who she was. She was never identified by us. According to Dave Wakeling, guitarist for the Beat, the Beat Girl image had a real purpose. Our early shows were mainly dominated by males. And of course, they were drinking, so there were lots of fights at the shows. That was the reason why we had the Beat Girl. We hoped the Beat Girl logo would draw more women to the gigs. With women there, the guys would stop trying to break each other's noses. They'd dress up a little more dandy and be on their better behavior to impress the women. It worked. Within three months of inventing the Beat Girl, we got loads of girls in Beat Girl costumes at our gigs. With all the skinheads showing off like crazy to the girls, we hardly had any fights after that. Until now, the identity of the Beat Girl has been a mystery. But my guest, Joanna Wallace, has done some amazing research and online detective work to identify who the Beat Girl is and to tell her fantastic and truly cinematic story. A little bit about Joanna. She describes herself as a lifelong nerd who is passionate about creating and making. Also known as Miss Upsetter, she has been involved in the ska and reggae community for over 20 years, doing booking, promoting, DJing, art design, and running online communities. Joanna launched Miss Upsetter Designs in 2018, which features her art and items she designed such as enamel pins, patches, and shirts. Joanna's love of ska and reggae led her to lead many online ska communities throughout the years, including Get Up Edina, the High Note Society, and the Rudy's All Around Facebook group, which all focus on traditional ska and reggae. Joanna just debuted her fantastic online documentary all about the woman who was the beat girl called Blue Beat Baby, which is now available to watch on YouTube. Joanna Wallace, welcome to the Ska Boom podcast. Thank you for having me. It's an honor. Thank you for joining me. Um, Congratulations. You've just debuted Blue Beat Baby, which is a fantastic online documentary about the story of the beat girl who, in my opinion, is one of the most iconic band logos ever. Ever. But, and I don't think a lot of people know this, the Beat Girl was a real person with an incredibly interesting life. Um, But before we get into that, 
I was hoping you could tell me a little bit about how you became so passionate about ska and reggae music and how you got into it. Oh, yeah. Um, I feel like I've told this story a lot, but um, it's still fun because I like, you know, I listen to your podcast, hearing other people's stories. I'm always interested in how people got into this relatively niche music. Um, For me, I was exposed to ska pretty early, but I didn't know what it was. Um, I grew up in a suburb of Phoenix, Arizona, Mesa, um, and not really in the most affluent of areas, to put it lightly. So there's just a lot of kids running around in my neighborhood of different ages. Um, And of course, this is before the internet. So we played outside a lot. And one of the older kids in our neighborhood who would kind of watch over us, make sure we don't die or whatever, um, would have a boombox going. And, you know, there was just constant music playing. Kids would bring out their tapes and we'd listen to it. And he was more into, like, the weird music at that time. And I specifically remember Skank and Pickle. Um, and I loved it. I didn't know that there was a whole genre to this until later. Um kind of fast forward to me being about 10 or so. Um, Again, in my neighborhood, lots of skater kids, you know, 90s skate culture was big. And um, we had this X Games CD that had Fishbone on it. Party at Ground Zero. I loved that song. Played it over and over and over and over and over until the CD was just like shot. And also, you know, kids handling CDs was not good. Um, things didn't really hit me that there was this whole rich subculture until I got to junior high and met some other kids who were into ska and they introduced me to the whole subculture aspect of it. And from that point on, I was just in love. Like, absolutely. We started going to shows And it got to the point, I think, where I was going to like three to five shows a week. You know, it was a very big scene. And I just fell in love with the whole message of of ska. I mean, mostly, you know, the two-tone subculture of anti-racism, acceptance, unity, equality. That meant a lot to me. And... um, I loved being involved in that. So that's why I'm still here. (laughs) (laughs) That's so interesting. You and I have similar um, experiences of of what drew us to two-tone. I mean, that was my gateway before I got into, you know, uh, 60s ska and and rock steady and early 70s reggae and things like that. Um, Two-tone was was, uh, what I started with, but it was for the very same reasons that you did. felt like an outsider where I grew up as well. Yeah. And so there was something about uh, this music that um, uh, made me feel like I, I had discovered something that I could feel that was bigger and that, yeah. that I could belong to. So yeah. and it's, it's, I've always loved to hear that people have similar stories and, you know, I, I call it a lightning bolt. Yeah. Moment. Yeah. I heard um, you mention that in other episodes and, you know, I, I it, it's, it is so cool because everyone has their journey with it. You know, um, a lot of the shows I was going to early on were Scott Punk. We had a huge Scott Punk scene and a lot of bands coming over from California. Like if they were around then, I probably saw them. I was very, very lucky. Um, but, I, you know, that started, I, I started to wonder what else is out there. And it wasn't easy then, I'm sure, as you know, to find other stuff. And so when I discovered Two-Tone, and it really felt it, it. I could identify with it more because there was more representation in two tone. There were more women in two tone. You know, even tying it back to the original topic, like the beat girl drew me in, and there really wasn't as much of that in in the ska punk scene that I was in. It was very male dominated. So two tone and hearing them talk about like serious issues and. I think really showing, even though I'm one person, I can make a difference meant so much to me. It kept me going. And again, I, that's why I'm still here. I love it. Yeah. 
it's funny. I'm, I'm the same way. You know, it's it's now um, about forty plus years that this has been the defining uh, sound of my life, but also yeah. sort of the, the two tone ethos and the philosophy has been a, something that's guided me. And most of my friends that I've met that I'm still friends with are 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 because of this music and, yes, and the bands. Yeah, and and I'm very grateful uh, for that. I'm all grateful for the you know um, community. Uh, that's built up around that so that yeah. folks from all over the country are connected because of their love of, of this music. And that to mm-hmm. me is, is, you know, pretty amazing. And all over the world too. Like it's incredible. Like even though we may not speak the same language, we still do through music. Right. Uh, you mentioned that uh, one of the things that you, that you enjoyed about uh, two tone was the beat girl. And, and because it was a sense of inclusiveness and, um, because, uh, she was a woman and, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's funny. I, I interviewed, um, Pauline Black of the Selector a couple of years ago and I asked her about two-tone and she made it very clear to me that that was only the beginning. It was not just supposed to be about black and white. It was supposed to be about men and women also. Yes. And so yes. that's something that I've also been very, um, adamant about sort of, um, revealing is that unfortunately two-tone sort of didn't quite um, meet its goal. Yes. Um, and so that women and women musicians were supposed to be, um, play a larger part yes. um, in, in its development and, and um, popularity. Um, yeah. So let's talk about the beat girl. Um, because I guess for me, I, I noted in my introduction that um, if it was possible to be attracted to a cartoon, I was very attracted to a cartoon. I found the beat girl incredibly attractive. And I spent mm-hmm. a lot of my high school and early college years looking to meet a woman who looked like mm-hmm. the beat girl. Um, mm-hmm. There was something very um, mysterious about the design um, and the look that she had. Um, and, there were, and, and I also noted in, in the beginning of this that the English beat and Dave Wakeling in particular made a conscious decision to have a woman as yes. their logo. Um, and we can talk about that, but I'd really like to know what initially drew you to this project that, that, that you spent six months of your life, um, working on this. Yeah. Um, so this is totally not planned at all. Uh, I, I've often referred to this as like the most ridiculous side quest ever. Um, <laughs> Cause I started off like wanting to make a design. So I am also an artist and designer and I run a website called Miss Upsetter Designs. And I had started doing reproduction Banbury badges. Um, And for those who aren't familiar in the two-tone era, they were these little plastic die cut badges with basically just like a flimsy ass safety pin on the back. And I loved them. And I, I actually began collecting those in the late nineties, early two two thousands on eBay. Um, back when you had to like send money in the mail or a mail order, but I was always afraid to wear them out. And so I was like, okay, well I'm an enamel pin designer. I know the process. I'm sure there's other people like me who, want to wear these designs out, but are afraid to mess their rare, fragile badges up. And so I was just kind of moving through some of the designs and and remaking them. And I was like, I got to do the beat girl. Like the beat girl was my first tattoo. Um, I always loved that image. I drew her all over my folders and stuff in high school. And I was like, I, I need to, I want to update her a little bit. Um, to, to have more human-like features. And so I started looking into Brigitte Bond and found on an archive site in Spain an image of her, you know, kind of like the, the licensing sites. And it, in the description, said medical sex change something. I was like, that seems, is that a typo? Is this a mistranslation or mismatched metadata or something. I'm going to look into that. And as I dug into it, I found that original photo 
from the archive site, like the actual physical photo for sale on eBay with the actual news article typed out on the back. So I was like, okay, this is no mistake. And that description left me with a lot of questions like, okay, she's trans. Didn't know that. That's cool. Um, she was engaged to someone with a title, sir. And she was supposed to get an inheritance. What? Like, what is all of this? And I couldn't find much information. And I'm a really stubborn person. Like, I really like to figure things out. And so I started digging and digging. I was like, okay, this, this, I, I need to get like subscriptions to archives to see if I can find anything. And it just kind of tumbled out of control, I guess. So this all started because I wanted to design a pin and ended up making a documentary. Oops. You, you, you went down a rabbit hole. Well, first I want to say I have, a, I have a bunch of those pins you talked about because yeah. there was a flea market near where I grew up. And um, my dad used to have a table at the flea market on weekends. And so he would bring me along and I had have to find ways to entertain myself for a couple yeah. hours. And there were um, people who sold like heavy metal t-shirts and rock and roll stuff. But yeah. they also had these pins that you described. And I couldn't mm-hmm. believe that I was finding like, um, well, Jabsco and the Beat mm-hmm. Girl. And you're right. They were beyond flimsy. Like they were a little yeah. plastic with like, like you said, like this cheap ass um, safety pin on mm-hmm. the back. And I still have them all. They're very treasured possessions. So yeah. I know exactly what you're talking about. It was a way for me and others, if you put it on your jean jacket and it was how you yeah. let other people know what you were into. Exactly. Um, Side note really quick about those pins. Um, I'm going to share some of this later, but I found the original art for those pins and they were not by two-tone artists like John Sims, David Story, Hunt Emerson, from what I could tell. From what I could tell, they were contest-winning designs in, um, oh, what's it called? One of those magazines, like the a music zine from then. Like people- Like drew, Smash Hits? Or yeah, something. It's, yeah, something like a rave or, right, yeah. Right. I, don't, I don't recall where it was. I, I have it saved. I just have a fuck ton of ska articles saved to my computer now. But it's in there and- I, I want to dig that out and actually put the names of the people who originally designed them on my listings of the reproduction. So those people finally get credit. Yep. So, yep. so, yeah. so you mentioned um, Brigitte Bond, um, but before we talk about her and her story, mm-hmm. uh, and I saw some of this um, online, uh, bef- I guess maybe while you were still in the midst of working on this, but mm-hmm. um there were a lot of women who were misidentified initially as, as the beat girl. Did you oh, yeah. come across any of that? And can you name some of the people? I mean, I, I think I saw there was a, uh, a woman, there was an Asian family who, who ran a record label in Jamaica. And I want to say yeah. that that woman was uh, Pat. Pat Chin. Yes. Yes. Were yeah. there others that you found who were sort of misidentified? Oh man. Um, geez. I, I mean, it's, it's kind of blended in with all of the fake legends I've heard throughout the years, you know, cause that, that was kind of like my ska canon in my brain, but I've, I've seen them brought up multiple times recently. So someone said Don Drummond's girlfriend. So Marguerite, my food, um, some people, like, Oh, it's Prince Buster's girlfriend. Um, some people have said, oh, they were, she was one of the, um, Jamaica ska dancers, you know, the, the people who went to the world's fair, like it's, you name it, who knows? Maybe it was like me. I don't know. Like there's just been such weird tall tales for the last 43 years. So, right. Right. Yeah. Which is why I think this is so important, um, that you have finally, um, identified her. And I think the truth is it was probably always out there just waiting to be found in a lot of ways. And you, mm-hmm. you um, were intrepid enough to, to do that. Um, so, you, you know, you've done some amazing online detective work finding out who she was. So you mentioned you started by, you found the, which is amazing to me, the original picture. Yeah. You found that on eBay. And then where did you take it 
from there? You had a name and you had a picture. Yeah. So from there, um, I got a subscription to the British newspaper archives and started digging. And the name Brigitte Bond turned up a fair amount of good information. And, um, but again, that's just newspaper stuff. I don't, I don't know a lot about the intimate details or personal details, but it, it illustrated that scene and her life and how things were for her then. So as I started to dig, I would kind of go down whatever piece of information was given to me from the clues I found. So, um, I started looking her up. I started looking up Sir John Waller, um, trying to find when she got in touch with Prince Buster, just trying to find anything based on what I knew at that point. And as I dug, my knowledge grew and it just cascaded into many branches of research. Yeah. Um, Now, for anybody who's listening uh, and might not have seen this picture of of Brigitte, can you um, describe it? Because it, when you see it, it's like, of course, that's yeah. where that comes from. But um, I'd like if you could just describe for people who are listening, what's going on in that picture? Yeah. So the moment the photo was taken, it is Prince Buster at Heathrow Airport. He just arrived right off a plane, just arrived from Paris to do a promotional tour in London to promote Scott. And as he got off, there were other Bluebeat musicians there, including Brigitte. He, Prince Buster and Brigitte start dancing. I don't know if there's music, who knows? And they start doing the twist, which was incredibly popular at that time. And as they were doing the twist together, a photo was taken and that's what the beat girl was based off of. Right. That's the picture that Hunt Emerson saw in the Melody Maker like 15 years later. I think the Melody Maker did like a retrospective article on Ska and Prince Buster. And there it was. Um, And that sort of explains when you see the original picture, Brigitte's sort of like at an odd angle, which if she's doing the twist would explain why her arms are sort of like out of her side um, like that. Now, something I did not know, and I found out from your documentary, was Brigitte was signed to Blue Beat Records, which was a ska uh, record label. Can you talk about that? Because that blew my mind. I had no yeah. idea that she was um, an artist on the label um, mm-hmm. and, and had, had put out, I think maybe, correct me if I'm wrong, one or two singles? Yeah, so she she had one single, you know, with a song on each side. Um, but yeah, she she was... Signed to Bluebeat. I am not sure when she recorded. I reached out on the Bluebeat site. Didn't hear anything. Um, I would love to find more information about that. But yeah, she she had kind of a ska poppy style with Bluebeat Baby and Oh Yeah Baby. Um, both of them are a little sexy, just like her. And I think that's pretty much the start and end of her ska career. Blue beat, I'm a blue beat baby. Blue beat, really drives me crazy. Beat, 
or say that she was sort of signed perhaps in the same vein that Millie Small was, so to sort of try and take advantage of, you know, um, young, sexy girl singing about, you know, to a ska ska beat? Um, That's hard to say because Millie was coming up around the same time and Millie hadn't blown up by the time Brigitte's single came out. So that was a com- like commentary I read a lot online about that particular single was, oh, this is just a cash in. Like, this is just like, you know, corporate push to make money on this off of my boy Lollipop. But they hit around the same time. So I feel kind of, eh, I don't know if, if it's the same. Maybe it was a competition. I mean, there's so much I could speculate about. Sure. Yeah. Um, what I do think is important for people to know is um, that in 1964, which is when that picture was taken and when, you know, Prince Buster was doing that promotional tour, there was a huge effort made to make ska popular. Yes. Like there was, they were trying to make it sort of like the new sound. Yeah. Um, like a response to Mersey Beat, like right. the Beatles. Exactly. Um, mm-hmm. In fact, the Beatles... Um, in one of their early songs, there's a um, eight bar bridge where they played ska. So mm-hmm. it was it was it was having an influence on on musicians and on yeah. the buy, record buying public, yeah. but unfortunately didn't quite hit and did not take off in the way that I think record labels were hoping at the time. And so yes, it sort of was a bit of a fad, right? Yeah. Um, and as you said, that was sort of the beginning and end of Brigitte Bond's sort of ska career. Right. Mm-hmm. But that wasn't the end of her story. Um, she was quite good at self-promotion, right? I would say, and sort of ended up being an it girl in British media tabloids in the 60s. So can you can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, so I don't think her being trans was a secret at all. Um, and I think she really used that in a way to be like, this is a new era. Like things, things are different. Just accept me for who I am. And the media was surprisingly inclusive and accepting of her. So that was a surprise for me. Um, After she released her single, she did tour a bit. And I don't think I have a good accurate picture to show how much she toured but it sounds like she was touring with bands under Tom Littlewood's um, umbrella and they were playing Scott. I, I do believe that. Um, but it seems like after she made headlines after her engagement was broken, she moved into the members only clubs and she may have done that or worked in that realm before, but it's much more apparent after because she got got media attention for being trans so i think there's much more advertisements because she was a draw for that Um, sure yeah um you know to prepare for this i did a little homework uh and i didn't get into the depth that you did in terms of looking at um uh you know, articles and newspapers from, from back then, but it seemed like, and the, and then, you know, the British press can be very sensational, but they would sort of refer to her as like the girl who used to be a boy, that that kind of thing, which I thought was interesting, but you're right. It wasn't judgmental. Mm -hmm. Um, It was sort of almost like uh, trying to make it, uh, to draw readers in, you know, to, to create that fascination about somebody who's different. Yeah. Um, uh, so you mentioned she sort of moved into into some of these members only clubs. Um was that sort of the beginning and end of her music career at that point or or was perform was she struck me from watching your your documentary that she was a performer at heart. Yes. Right? Yes, and she described herself as a girl showman. Hmm. Um so she is what they back then would call a vedette or eventually a super vedette. And that was kind of like these, you know, like a triple threat. I sing, I dance, I entertain, and she did strip teases. Um, 
So she, she kind of did it all. And that's not something that you could really capture on record or at that time media due to, you know, various conservative natures. Um, but she was very successful. It seemed she traveled all over the world doing that. And there was a big scene for that of, of these, not only vedettes, uh, but trans vedettes. Yeah. Fascinating. And so what I think we would call her now is an entertainer, right? Yeah. She was an entertainer. And again, from watching your documentary, I was impressed with her ability to get herself in the newspaper. Um, mm-hmm. Now, you mentioned this British nobleman who she was engaged to, which mm-hmm. again, I thought was sort of fascinating. Um, and what I also read later was that it's possible that he was gay, which might have explained oh, why. He was. Yeah, why <laughs> he was <gay. laughs> uh, the whole engagement was sort of treated more like a media frenzy and less like a real legitimate love story, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. But can you talk about that? Because the British media seemed to really, for a time, be focused on that story. Can you talk about, about what went on there? Yeah, yeah. So I think England, I, I, I could be wrong. This is just my observation that they they have an interest in royalty and nobility, even with someone like Sir John, not very high standing at all. Um, but they still had interest in him because he was affluent and he had a ton of money coming to him through an inheritance and he needed to have a male heir who reached the age of 10 to be able to get his massive inheritance. So he enjoyed the attention and he would often find his way into headlines for whatever reason. I did not include a lot of that in the documentary, but he was, he was pretty similar. You know, he, his, search for a wife or mother of his child went on for gosh, 20 years, something like that. And it's just, he, he always found a way to get the attention. Um, in a way, I think part of it is a bit of, um, you know, we use the term beard now to kind of cover up that he was gay. Um, but Well, what I thought was fascinating was there were these strange rules put on him that he could, like you said, he could not collect his inheritance unless he sired an heir, which seemed very like 19th century. Mm -hmm. Um, um, And as you said, it took him 20 years to finally meet a woman. And then uh, as luck would have it, he had a daughter with her. So I I don't think he ever collected his, his inheritance. Did he? No, no. His obituaries discuss that. And, and even interestingly, one of his obituaries says that he didn't even have a child, which is false. And that was at that time. So I, I don't know what happened there. I get, I try to keep a lot of speculation out of the documentary um, because this is like foundational research and I don't want to insert ideas in people's mind, especially because I'm, the story's not complete. Right. Right. And and I, I respect you for that. That's really important when you're doing this type of work. Um, but let's, I'm also was sort of fascinated by how, um, Sir John and Brigitte were sort of connected. Um, and, and, you know, uh, it was then revealed, oh, well, it's not going to work out because Brigitte can't, produce an heir. And the reason Mm -hmm. Brigitte can't do that is because Brigitte is transgender. Right. Mm -hmm. And again, covered fairly innocently. I thought, you know, again, you, you, it was, it was, you know, it seems like back then it, it, it wasn't as big a deal as maybe it it seems to be, you know, in this country now, the way that certain places here are focused on transgender and, you know, teaching kids about, you know, there's such concern and worry about the impact or influence that transgender people have. But it almost yeah. seemed like back then it was more to sell newspapers and less about a judgment on, on, on her. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's an accurate thing to say. Um, and back then, you know, there's no social media. The only way to get yourself out there is to be in papers. Um, so 
both of both Sir John and Brigitte found their ways into papers repeatedly. Um, it's it's just fascinating to me. Just the and also just the things that were reported back then. It did work very similarly to our social media now. Right. Um, one of the things in the documentary, which again I was like, you know, my mouth was dropped open, is um, Reverend Billy Graham. <laughs> Came to England to sort of try and spread his fundamentalist Christianity uh, in England. And I guess he was trying to get in the newspaper. So he goes down to Soho, um, which for anybody who hasn't been to London or is not familiar with, is sort of like um, where you could, there were bars and pubs, but also sort of sex clubs and and yeah. um, striptease places. So I guess in his mind, he considered that sort of the the um, central. Preach, yeah. yeah. Preach to the sinners. The sinners, Exactly. <laughs> So he shows up, but, and I thought it was hilarious that he was like, well, I just wanted to shake some people's hands, but like yeah, right. a thousand, <laughs> thousand people turn out and one of them is Brigitte yeah. and Brigitte somehow gets on the hood of his car, mm-hmm. right? Can you talk a little bit about that whole story? Oh yeah. Going back to, to, to Billy Graham, um, overall he didn't there was a lot of criticism of him being there. Like we don't need the American brand of, of Christianity. We're just fine. Um, and also him saying, Oh, well, I didn't expect for you all to be here there. They took out a newspaper ad. Are you kidding me? Like, <laughs> like so yeah, a lot of people are going to go there to see what the hell is going to happen when this American evangelist tries to go to the epicenter of the freaks and weirdos and sinners of London. And I don't know if you could tell from the footage, like it just seems really uncomfortable, like people waiting for something to happen. And she made herself seen. And if you look at that footage, she is just like circling him, just waiting and she did a great job of intimidating him out of Soho. <laughs> really, like, you're not welcome here. We don't need you. We don't need this. We're fine. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it was fascinating. And I don't know if it was, it was you or the, the archival footage you found, but there's like um, a little circle um, yeah. around her in the crowd yeah. um, that shows you what you just said, where she's sort of in the crowd at the, near mm-hmm. the front. And then I guess she makes her move. Um, yeah. And us talking about it is interesting, but seeing it is even better, which is yeah. why people should tune in yeah. uh, to your documentary to check this out. But again, I just thought it was it was fascinating, again, how she was able to figure out, I don't know if she had a publicity manager or she was just smart enough to know how to do this. Yeah. Um, but she's like in this incredibly short mini skirt. Um, mm-hmm. She looks amazing. And she slides across the hood of his car, <laughs> right? Yeah. Well, she like climbs up. I, I like, you could see her like aggressively beckon him like, no, talk to me. And he, like, I love how he's just like, Kuba. <laughs> and like just pieces out. Like he, I think he was scared. I really do. And that was like the only time any of his sermons were cut short or that he chose to leave early because of her. So that, that also makes me wonder, like, did they have other run-ins prior to this? That, <laughs> you know, like, uh, but again, I wanted to keep my speculation out of it because the newspaper article says that she wanted to try to track him down at one of Soho's coffee shops to confront him again. So I'm like, was this like her hobby for that month is to just fuck with Billy Graham? If so, great. I love it on brand for her. <laughs> yeah. It was like a bit of cat and mouse going on there. Yeah. Um, being transgender in the 60s, uh, and you mentioned that, you know, she was a vedette or super vedette, which, which again, I, I learned mm-hmm. from your documentary. Um, but that was a whole other world. Um, and that was the world where I assume she went in order to sort of make a living. And um, uh, she, as you noted, she traveled around the world. And I was sort of fascinated. Like, um, she was regularly performing in Spain at the time mm-hmm. that um, Franco was essentially the dictator 
And yeah. while Franco was a dictator of Spain, I don't believe that you were allowed to be gay or or transgender. I think people probably ended up in jail. Yes. Um, so, but there she was, uh, o- openly sort of performing in in, in Spain, right? And other places yeah. too. I want to say there were yeah. uh, parts of Africa, right? I yeah, mean- yeah. And all over the world, like in, in that final interview, she talks about all of these places that she's gone and, and I don't have any evidence of that, of like Argentina, the United States. Um, I don't, I don't know, but she, she found a way and, and others did too, because when I was trying to find her, I was looking at other people in that scene to see, are there pictures with her in it? She's not identified. So I did a deep dive into that scene too. And it's, it's incredible. It's really incredible. They, I mean, it is very similar to the DIY ethics, you know, just very similar to Scottsdale ethics, in my opinion, just support one another, lift one another up. It's cool. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking maybe that should be your next, your next project. I mean, <laughs> it sounds really, really interesting that there was yeah. this whole world of transgender performers in the sixties yeah. and, you know, where did they go? How did they make a living? Yeah. It's, it sounds um, fascinating, particularly some of the places that they were. Um, did, do you know, and this might not be a question you can answer, but did she have a manager? Did she have people that were helping her manage her career or did she do most of this on her own? So early in her career, she was managed by Tom Littlewood, who ran the Two Eyes Coffee Shop, which I believe all subcultures in our lineage start there. Um, but I think she left pretty quick. Um and moved over to the Birdie Green or Arthur Lowe Agency, which was part of Birdie Green's Astor Club. And I think after that, she left pretty quick too. I don't know if she managed herself after that, but I don't find any other information of her having a manager after the Arthur Lowe Agency. What do you think happened to Brigitte? Because it's clear from your documentary that um, the trail sort of goes cold at, at a certain point. Yeah. I don't know. Um, I have a lot of speculations. Um, overall, I mostly, I just hope she lived a a happy and peaceful life. Um, I do have concerns that maybe she died or was killed in Franco era Spain, even though he was dead by that time, the overall government and nature of society then was still not that kind. And thankfully, eventually, it shifted around and Spain is now one of the most LGBTQ friendly places in the world. But back then, it was not. And I do have concerns that maybe she was murdered or killed. Hopefully, I she was just like, you know what? I'm good. I'm going to go live in this quaint little village in Italy and live happily ever after. I don't know, though. What do you think her lasting legacy is, you know, you've spent half a year working on this documentary. You know, you, you did a lot of deep research, but personally, you know, if, if you had to sum up what you think her legacy is, what, what do you, how, how would you explain that? Oh, geez. She, she's just a pioneer in so many ways to me. Um, from what I can tell, and I could be wrong, She's the earliest trans ska musician. So there's that. The imagery of the beat girl, even though she really didn't have a direct hand in creating that, that image means a lot to some people. Um, And I think she also helped make this, this world, you know, one, one of those people who made an impact to make this world more inclusive and understanding. I, I think you're, you're right on all those. Um, and as both of us are, are passionate fans of ska music, I, I think you're right. She was the first trans ska musician uh, almost 60 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing I love is that people wear that English beat t-shirt with mm-hmm. A, a design based on her, and they don't know that they're wearing a picture of a 
of a trans woman. And now, mm-hmm. and now we know that. And I just think there's something so fantastic yeah. about that that adds, as we were talking earlier, it adds to the inclusiveness of yeah. um, two-tone music and ska music in general. Yeah. And that, I mean, I was, I did have, I'll be real. I, I had a lot of concerns with what I should do with this information because I wanted to make sure if I release this information, if she's still alive, how would this impact her? How would this impact the trans community, especially within the ska scene? How would this impact people who have tattoos of her and maybe are transphobic? What would they do? So I, I weighed a lot of things and ultimately decided, yes, this needs to be released, even if it makes some people mad, but she's everywhere. She represents ska and I love it. (laughs) If, If you, wherever you go at a ska show, chances are you will see Brigitte or the beat girl mm-hmm. however you want to refer to her um, on somebody's shirt, or as you said, on a tattoo or a pin or yeah, a button. Or, it's, it's yeah. really unbelievable. And, and, you know, a little bit of research that I've done about the beat and some of the, the um, archival stuff I've done, none of them knew who she was. None of them gave much thought to it. They just thought this is the most awesome logo we could have. And it, it helped them brand themselves and, and, you know, sell a lot of merch. Um, mm-hmm. but I'm, you know, again, just so excited, uh, and impressed that you have found the story behind that, that, that iconic picture. Um, you debuted the documentary, um, last week, uh, but it's, it's still available. So can you talk a little bit about where people can, can find this so they can watch it online? Yeah, it's for free on YouTube. You can look up Bluebeat Baby or Miss Upsetter Designs, and you'll see it on there. Um, it does have closed captions. Those closed captions are translatable. Um, accessibility was a big thing for me, especially because I'm, I'm waiting on other people to be like, hey, I knew her, um, but I want to reach as many people as possible. So that meant getting translations and captions, all that good stuff. So everyone around the world can have it translated in their own language. <laughs> Right. So it's, it's blue beat baby. you just go on YouTube and type blue beat baby in, and it, this will pop up. I got to mm-hmm. watch it last weekend and I'm going to watch it again because it's only about a half hour long, but you have packed yes. so much information about her life story in there. Mm-hmm. I, I could have imagined that you might've even been able to go longer, but I think I, oh, appreciate, yeah. I appreciate that it's, it's, it's 30 minutes and it's um, a fairly digestible um, yeah. way to watch. Yeah. And that was important to me too, because like, I didn't want to make it drag because one thing I had to cut out a lot of was these links. There are so many wild links out there uh, for her and people she knew and the like circles she ran in. That's why it just blew my mind. Like, how come no one has put together anything about her? How come she hasn't had anything written up about her life? I mean, I, I cut a lot of that out because it felt like I was hammering it too hard and it deviated from the story too much but yeah I could have gone a lot longer I still have a lot of things I didn't include it yeah I think I ended up having like over a thousand total pieces of of information so yeah yeah you know having written a book an oral history uh I completely sympathize with you because when you're in it it's sometimes hard to be able to edit yourself because you want, it it feels like your children and you want to include as much information as you can. And I was think I was guilty of that, which is why my book is probably too long. Um, But there are just stories you, you don't want to lose. So I'm, I'm impressed that you were able to sort of um, edit yourself, which is hard to do. I think when you're either a writer or a documentarian. Yes. Yes. And at times I, I feel like the pacing was a little too fast, but I'm like, you know what? I wanted to keep it around a half hour, 45 minutes. And as it started coming together, I was like, yeah, it's, it's about half hour. I'll keep it at that. You know, yeah. I don't want to take up people's whole day. <laughs> no, I think, I think you, you, you were right. You hit on just the perfect length, particularly in the short attention span world that we, yeah. that we live in now. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, uh, just got um, two more questions. Sure. For you, um, 
I, I again as as a as a would be documentarian, although I use the word in, words instead of images. Um, how did you source all of the incredible footage that you found? Because it's this, it's this great mix of you pop up, so you know you're almost like our guide and our narrator taking us yeah. through, but. The footage you found, like uh, maybe there's places to find this that I'm not familiar with, but can you just, from a technical sense, can you just tell people how you how you did that? Oh uh, yeah, digging through lots and lots and lots of archives and YouTube and documentaries and seeing where documentaries source their stuff and just digging and digging. I mean, seriously, it's it's so fucking incredible. We have all of these things being digitized and archived now and like put online, but they're not around. Like if you Googled it, you probably, they probably wouldn't show up in results. You know, it's kind of like, if you think of your library, even though your library has their, um, their catalog online, those don't really show up in search results. So you have to know these places and dig within those sites. So it was a lot of digging through weird shit. And I, found a lot of weird shit. Um, a lot, a lot of, and I looked, I, I'll be, I looked through so much old porn. Oh my God. To think, cause she was in that world thinking maybe she had a different name and she didn't. So a lot of just scoping for really general stuff, but yeah. Um, the, the efforts being made to preserve old media is truly incredible. And I think that's why I was able to piece together the documentary I did. Yeah. That's one of the beauties of um, the web and the internet, I think, is, yeah. it, is that, you know, sitting in your home, uh, if you wanted to do a project like this, that you were uh, technically able to do that. Um, yeah. It's sort of like the democratization of, um, of uh, creating content, which I think is one yeah. of the best things about the era that we live in. Mm-hmm. So, um, have you got plans for, for anything else? Because I would say that you have, uh, in my mind, sort of established <laughs> yourself as a, um, a force uh, in terms of being a documentarian. Are there other things that you've thought about at this point? Or do you, do you need a little more time to sort of breathe and figure things out? Oh, yeah. I mean, I have so much leftover material that I want to share with the world because I really care about ska and archiving it and giving it the proper history. Cause as you know, a lot of it is a oral history. You know, we don't fit up there with, with the wars and the politicians and the pop music. We have to tell our own stories. So, um, I do have some topics I'm interested in. Um, a lot, a lot really around subculture and origins of subculture and why Scott is this way. Um, I also want to get into the media depiction of ska and why it's always been so misunderstood. Um, those, I mean, those are really big themes, but I, I'm so fascinated by that because I came across this just digging for stuff. Um, I would like to dip my toes in the Jamaican water too, but that, that stuff is really, I think it's still pretty well, well tread. Um, but yeah, there's there's just so much incredible stuff out there. And I thought I knew my shit before. I don't know my shit. Oh my God. There's <laughs> like, so I learned so much making this documentary. And so, like you said, some of the footage, like you said, it blew your mind. It blew my mind. Like, oh my, I was screaming some days where I was like, oh my God, this is, ah! like finding that, that video footage of a poster of her at the two eyes. What the fuck? How? How did that, like, there's so little footage of the two eyes, but that was out there. That is just wild to me. So there's um, something to be said, you know, um, you're young enough to have, have dug for records and record stores. When you have mm -hmm. something on your list, it's sort of like that when you find it and it's that feeling. Yeah. Oh my God, I finally found it. I'm sure that was the same feeling you must've had when you, you know, when you're trying to piece a story together and you need that important, you know, bridge to help mm-hmm. tell the story when you find that stuff. Yeah. Um, well, I, I hope that you will keep um, creating um, and, pu- you know, telling stories. Cause you know, I'm, that's what I've decided. I'm all about telling other people's stories. So we keep mm-hmm. um, the music alive, the history yes. and the stories of, of all the people who have dedicated so much time and energy to this music that we love so much. So I'm really excited to see what you 
come up next with. And before we end, I do want to just say, uh, to, to promote a little bit about something else you're doing, you are sort of helping Heather Augustine, right, on her, um, or, or you contributed to a chapter, I think, that about mm-hmm. Brigitte that will be included in her, her two-tone book, right? Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> Heather came in when, so I knew she was writing Rude Girls, um, because she interviewed me for it, which again, that huge honor. Um, so I knew she was working on that. I knew in Songbirds, she mentioned Brigitte. And so I was like, I should reach out to her. Is she doing anything about Brigitte with Rude Girls? And so she was. And when I reached out to her, I, I'd reached, um, like, my, my trail had gone cold. And I was hoping maybe, you know, she's a pro, maybe she has more info. And from there, we just started to collaborate more and more. So I think the big breakthrough for for me was her name changed. And that's, I, I believe Heather got stuck there too. And I think everyone who looked up Brigitte Bond before would not know that she changed her stage name to Brigitte St. John. And after I verified that, it just kind of, started moving more and more. So Brigitte will have her own chapter in this book. And I'm hoping over the next couple of months, some people who knew her or have information, um, pictures, whatever reaches out to me or Heather and we can get her story told. Finally, that's, that's like the most important thing to me. I, that's why I chose to keep myself out of the documentary as much as possible to really focus on Brigitte because that's a story that needs to be told. And that's a story that is still actively working. Yeah. Well, Joanna, it's been a pleasure to speak with you. You and, too. Um, I'm uh, a big fan of your documentary and I, I really look mm. forward to seeing what you do next and uh, really want to um, recommend anybody listening to go and watch Blue Beat Baby. Again, you can find it on YouTube and um Joanna, here's a chance to do um, uh, a plug for yourself. You you mm-hmm. talked a little bit about some of the design work you do, so so plug away. Yeah, um, so I have a website, MissUpsetterDesigns.com. That's really where I focus a lot of my art hobby, in a way. Um, I am planning on making a lot more ska and reggae-related designs, um, so look out for that. Uh, I also do a lot of Star Wars and nerdy shit over there too. Um, I run a couple Facebook groups, Rudy's all around, really more towards the traditional and subculture side of the Scott reggae scene. You don't have to be part of that to join. Um, that's just where the primary discussion focus is. Um, I also run the High Note Society, which is kind of like Rudy's all around, but, you know, women and like femme identifying only keep us safe and have conversations that typically may not work as well over in Rudy's all around. And um, yeah, I think that's all, all my ska dork stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. We're both ska dorks. Um, Oh, huge dork. (laughs) Well, Joanna, again, thank you for taking time to speak with me. Um, I'm a big fan. And uh, everybody, go watch Blue Beat Baby. Um, thanks for listening to the Skaboom podcast. Um, and this may or may not be the last episode I do, but this is a great way to close out um, the Two-Tone Legacy series that I that I started. This is episode number 10 of that, and I couldn't think of a better way to, um, to wrap that up than to oh. tell the story of Brigitte Bond. So thank you. Thank you.